Hello and welcome to another episode of Afghan Affairs Podcast. This is Sabur Brahimi. The topic that we're going to be discussing today is the Turkic heritage of Afghanistan. I really look forward to this and I really hope that it's going to be a very educational episode. Now to discuss this topic, I have two great guests today, Dr. Zohra Said from Brooklyn, New York and Mr. Mohib Modasser from London. Dr. Zura Said is a poetess and also she's a professor here in New York. Mr. Muddasser is a journalist for the BBC and also he is a PhD researcher focusing on minority rights. Without further ado, I would like to start with Dr. Zura Said, who actually inspired this episode uh, with her tweet earlier about her family's heritage. So, Dr. Said, over to you. I think that my family is a, a little unique because, um, well, one, where uh, I guess our migration is marked by all the 20th century wars that were happening in Central Asia. Um, the um, <clears throat> Sovietization or the, uh, uh, the Bolshevik uh, invasion of uh, Central Asia, the um, which caused mass uh, migration and displacement. Uh, then the uh, partition, which affected my grandfather, because he had gone from Marhalan uh, to uh, uh, through China to India, and then the uh, war in Afghanistan as well. So the Soviet in Afghanistan. So. Um, it's been an, it's always interesting to uh, tell my story because um, uh, there's a lot of movement. A lot of people who write, uh, especially with Afghanistan, are very, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing to mark and trace back 500 or 5,000 years for some, but we don't have that kind of group, but we love uh, Afghanistan. And I've grown up with a love for the country and I've always, um, Spent a lot of my um, my college years, my other uh, on my own. Before that, I was with my my father and my family, of course. But when everyone was protesting uh, the Soviet invasion in uh, Afghanistan in the eighties and nineties, eighties uh, and I guess that's that's it, just eighties. Um, so I think that um, for me, I've never seen Afghanistan, but it's really the memories the photographs and the experiences that have been passed on to me that have sort of inspired uh, this love. And I think that, you know, it's um, received a lot of questions that I'd left out, a lot of um, other minority groups. This is just our family experience, and it was uh, limited. It was in Jalalabad city, not in, um, not in Kabul, which is, I think, very different. Um, it was um, a small, um, very uh, uh, tight community in Jalalabad City, and that's why you had so much uh, protection and love within all the, the different groups. And I think that makes a difference. Jalalabad was a very a cosmopolitan city. It was where ambassadors had homes. It was where um, uh, trade and travel was coming in uh, from the east. Um, so it's like a gateway into Afghanistan and a gateway into the rest of Central Asia. So 
it makes it a very um, worldly place, even though it's small and it was considered sort of the Bocha of Kobo, right? The Garden of Kobo. Um, so that's the uh, experience I had. And we were, um, my grandfather and my granduncle served as the, um, uh, the dentist, or the only dentist in Jalalabad for 40 years. And um, then my father became a dentist and my uh, uncle became a dentist as well. And my father served all these fantastic places, distant, remote places, and he'd have to travel on a donkey to get to the mountain areas to serve, um, you know, people who couldn't come down uh, into the city to uh, get treatment. So that was a, that's where the story comes from, my, my father, really. We will come back to you, Dr. Zor. I have, I have more questions for you, but I want to uh, give um, uh, Mr. Mudasser um, uh, a chance to speak about the composition of uh, like like uh, Turkic communities in Afghanistan. Like, who are they? Like, what should we know about them? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Raimi. Uh, so basically, Afghanistan in itself is a very pluralistic country with different ethnic cultural groups uh, within the country. And Turkic people, uh, and these phrases like Turkic, maybe some people don't like it because they call themselves Turks or nowadays they've been named with their ethnic group names. Uh, so first of all, this identity of ethnic identity is very quite uh, recent phenomenon. And previously, they used to be much more, the identities were framed around the regions, the, the village that you live or the province or the uh, region that you live. So, but nowadays we name them uh, with different kind of uh, basically social uh, frame, and one of them is eth- ethnic group. So Afghanistan is consists of uh, diverse uh, ethnicities. There's at least fourteen of them been named in Afghan constitution. The Turkic people within themselves they are very diverse. So, uh, although nowadays they've been named as Turkmen, Uzbek. Kherkes, Kazakh, uh, Aymaks, and other groups, but uh, uh, each of them within themselves, they are consist of different tribes, because uh, as you know, the Turkic people lived a nomadic life, uh, and they were divided in different tribes and clans, and each of them were named after the head of the clan or the region that they used to live, for example, uh, and then there were big, bigger groups like Kepchak uh, or Karlok or Ogos, and they're all Altaic uh, people. So they, the language that they speak is Altaic language, which is a different class than in the European languages. And uh, so in Afghanistan today, we have uh, several big groups of uh, Turkic people, and in terms of language, also we have uh, Turkmens who speaks like. Oghuz uh, dialect of Altaic language, and we have Uzbeks who uh, talk in uh, Kipchak kind of uh, dialect of the uh, Turkic languages. Uh, but uh, about the population of uh, Turkic people in Afghanistan, we don't know because Afghanistan never had a census. Uh, partial census in the 70s took place, uh, but it never completed, and most didn't cover most of the north uh, North Afghanistan. Uh, but but there's the variety of estimation, some estimation says between uh, the Uzbek population, between 9 to 12% uh, of uh, Afghan population, 
and there is different estimation about Turkmen. Uh, and also about the identity itself is very changing. I mean, uh, from time to time, for example, uh, once upon a time, most of these tribes used to be called Turk, but now they're, they're they divided in uh, sub-clans or sub-tribes and sub-ethnic groups. For example, Aymak, they're totally an, another group, or Hazaras, for example, they are consist of another uh, Turkic people, but uh, they're uh, they nowadays they do not consider themselves or by others. Uh, they do not been identified as Turk, uh, and they've been called like Hazaras. But we know that in historical terms, uh, they they were called by their tribal names rather than uh, Hazara. Uh, so we don't know about the the, the exact number of uh, all these uh, ethnic groups, uh, but they live. Uh, predominantly in northern Afghanistan uh, these days, from Oxus, like Amur River, to Hindukush. But this is not uh, exclusively in north Afghanistan. Turkish people live in almost all parts of Afghanistan. We have, as uh, Dr. Said said, uh, she lived in Jalalabad, and you know that Jalalabad is itself is a city named after one of the Turkic uh, kings, Jalaluddin Akbar, the former of that city. And Helmand and Kandahar, uh, and uh, even other part of the northern, uh, southern Afghanistan or central Afghanistan, uh, they used to live. So nowadays they they live predominantly in north and northeastern Afghanistan, and and these people are, in terms of their cultural, their uh, linguistic, their social, they have many similarities too. We had a neighbor in Kabul during the civil war, actually, who had escaped. Uh... Uh, this, uh, the, the fighting, uh, ironically, in the north to come to Kabul and perhaps from there go somewhere else. Uh, a lot of people were displaced. They had to leave the country. And uh, unfortunately, that trend continues today. So what's happening to the people who are perceived as minorities, but also uh, people who are actually minority, very few numbers of, for instance, uh, Hindus and Sikhs. Uh, what's happening to, to them? Yeah, so minority is the, uh, the area of my study. Basically, my PhD is about minorities. And uh, I always say that this word is very controversial, especially in countries like Afghanistan, where they have uh, ethnocultural diversity and those diversity change to uh, division and opposition. And uh, so antagonism around that is uh, very high. So that's why we need to be very uh, careful about that. And I always try to explain uh, before even talking about minorities that minorities in the definitions that, uh, although there is no definition, but the accepted some definitions in international law that we have and we are dealing with is that one aspect and one characteristics of minorities can be uh, numerical inferiority. But that's not covering all areas because in many other countries we have uh, a my, a minority rulers. So the communities who are in terms of numerically, they can be minority, but they are ruling class and they be considered in, a sense in terms of uh, power as majority because they are ruling. And we have many examples of that from Syria to Bahrain, from uh, Iraq during the Saddam regime to South Africa during the apartheid regime. And even today in many other countries. So therefore, I mean, one aspect that uh, in countries like Afghanistan, I call minorities, the uh, relation of the communities to power, those who are holding power and uh, those who are being subordinated or marginalized. 
or uh, their vulnerable groups. So all these aspects are also important in framing the concept of minority. So Turkic people in itself, uh, yes, and some of them, when we compare them to the general population of Afghanistan, probably numerically, they, uh, they are inferior, and also in terms of power. But uh, Uzbeks and Turkmen, uh, I should say that they are dissidents of the Turkic tribes, which are in all the Central Asia and Inner Asia, have been living for centuries and centuries before the formation of a country called Afghanistan. And before that, for many centuries, they, they ruled the area uh, as in the, in, the, in the forms of different empires or kingdoms or uh, chieftains and khanats of the uh, Central Asia and Northern Afghanistan. And Northern Afghanistan itself, uh, both uh, culturally, linguistically, and socially, mainly, and geographically, have been, uh, have been part of Central Asia. And uh, historically, have been called Turkestan, basically. And this name of Turkestan is not just a phrase by uh, Turkic nationalists, but uh, in the Afghan uh, law, uh, before, uh, up to like 60 years ago, uh, the name of that region used to be the province of Turkestan. Uh, and the division, the Afghan division within the uh, uh, constitution of Afghanistan, the name of the north of Hindukush mountains used to be called Turkestan, and then Katagan province were uh, separated from Turkestan, and later on they were been divided in several other smaller provinces. Uh, but but the region itself never been uh, just uh, predominantly by Turks, but the, the uh, population have been always uh, heterogeneous. Different groups used to live in north of Indokush, and also in south Indokush in Kabul. We know from Babur Nama, uh, the, the the memoir of uh, King Babur, who wrote that when he describes Kabul and he says that people in this city speak in different languages, and uh, like Persian, like Mughal, like Arabic, like uh, Turkic, and he names several dialects in, in, the, in that region. So from that, we know that uh, even Kabul never been exclusively uh, any predominant one language, that different languages, different ethnic groups used to live, and uh, there have been inter. Uh, family marriage and inter-ethnic uh, marriage and inter-race marriage between different groups. For example, my family is very diverse. My mom's side is from Kabul, a Tajik, like Persian speaker, while my dad is an Uzbek. But my mom has got connection to Pashtun. She has got Pashtun bloods, and my dad has got connection to the Bukhara because my grandma was from Bukhara, an immigrant from Bukhara to Afghanistan. Uh, so that has been very diverse. and. Uh, but coming to the uh, minority situation in Afghanistan, ever since the emergence of Afghanistan as a nation state uh, with, with its own boundaries, uh, minor the, the policies of Afghan government regarding minorities always have been uh, three things. First, uh, when Abdurrahman came to the power, so the policy was uh, elimin eliminationist. So basically, he wanted to eliminate most of those who were uh, could put any challenge to the central uh, state. And Turkic people was one of those uh, groups which has been kind of faced uh, atrocities by the central government of Abdurrahman Khan. 
because before that, we know that before the 18th century, Afghanistan was a sandwich between three Turkic uh, powers. And in the north, we had Shaybanid, uh, and in the west, we had uh, Nadir Afshars like Safavids, and in the south, we had uh, Mughals or Barbaries. So the, the challenge for, for the Durrani Empire was to take power from all those uh, three uh, powerful or similar powerful uh, empires. And so after that, when uh, Abdurrahman came to power, they wanted to get, uh, although he came with to power with the help of the people from North Afghanistan, mainly Turkic people, because before that he was in Tashkent and in Samarkand. But he oppressed all of those um, groups. And after that, we know that up until the uh, second half of the 20th century, the Turkic people totally excluded from any uh, power centers or most of the economic, uh, political, military, uh, and all these affairs. And so they've been excluded. Uh, uh, the other uh, minorities as well, like um, Azaras, for example, also faced lots of atrocities and discrimination since the emergence of Afghanistan as a, a nation state, uh, because the same policy was uh, toward Hazaras, for example, because Uzbeks and Tur Turkic people were facing uh, discrimination based on their ethnicity and language, while Hazaras were uh, facing discrimination based on their religion and also their ethnicities, although because they're Persian speakers, the Hazaragi dialect of per Persian. And other groups like uh, Hindus, uh, and th they faced also uh, lots of uh, discrimination in Afghanistan based on their uh, religion, uh, because most of the Afghan constitutions uh, named the, the state religion as Islam, and, and within the Islam, a uh, single division of Islam, the Sunni Hanafi Islam, uh, and excluded others. Basically, for, so for example, being a king or then later being a president, you you you, you must uh, should have been like a Muslim and still is the same, and should have been a Sunni Muslim, not even a Shia. So that excluded within the law frameworks kind of uh, minorities from being powerful. Mm -hmm. And Uzbek Hazaras and others, they were excluded from entering the military uh, and also entering the universities, and lots of them. One of the reasons that many Uzbeks are and were illiterate and uneducated was because of those policies. Mm -hmm. uh, up until the leftist regime, Uzbeks could not enter military, and uh, Hazaras were the same. So, but nowadays the ch things is changing. Now their identity being recognized by the state, their language has been recognized in the constitution of Afghanistan, uh, so they can have they have right to educate in their own language, uh, at least in, at school. Uh, and also they have got the uh, uh, right to enter military and the states and the government, and they can be part of the uh, state institutions. So the things are changing, but there is still lots of uh, problems within the law and also within the practice, practice of those law in Afghanistan, comparing, uh, especially considering the minorities. And discrimination exists both institutional discrimination, uh, systematic discrimination, and also in the social level, also 
minorities face lots of discrimination. And we, the example, the very harsh example of that could be uh, the Hindu minorities and the Sikh minorities of Afghanistan. They, uh, they were facing different variety of discrimination within the state, within the society, and also by uh, some militant groups. They've been targeted. So they had no choice but to leave the country. So the same thing happened to other minor, religious minorities, like, uh, for example, Jews who left Afghanistan. And before that, Armenian Christians, they left Afghanistan. And uh, ethnically, for example, Kazakhs left Afghanistan as well during the civil war in 90s. They went to Kazakhstan. Uh, so Afghanistan is not doing, uh, although much progress happened, but not doing at the moment very well regarding the minorities' rights. And so the sad reality that some Afghans have left uh, the country and some are actually leaving like the Sikhs right now. Dr. Said, what is your view on that, uh, especially with regards to the treatment of minorities? Well, my family is Uzbek. Uh, my grandmother is, um, uh, she's Uyghur. So we're mixed. My my maternal grandfather was Kipchak, but for the most part, we speak and we identify as um, sort of from Marhalan, originally, originally from Marhalan. Um So uh, that would be his back. Um, so uh, when I uh, I put in that tweet, um, it was definitely in just five little short notes. So it's not really. Comprehensive. What I wanted to say was that in Jalalabad, my dad didn't feel different. And that was very different than uh, maternal side of the family in Kabul. And they were constantly, um, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, I could bring up all the racist uh, things about not having a nose and, um, you know, eating horses, eating donkeys. And, and there's a lot of like uh, verbal. Um, that carries over, that carried over to the diaspora. So for myself, growing up in New York, I heard more of the, um, uh, the, the cruel sort of racist terms and words uh, among the uh, people at the mosque and the community. So, um, but I wanted to really highlight my father's experience because it was, again, that particular city and the way people dealt with um, hospitality and um, this idea of welcome. Uh, I don't think it's applicable to a lot of different, um, uh, especially the capital of Kabul. I've always felt that um, in Kabul it was, uh, or when I meet fr- uh, friends from Kabul, the emphasis is there's a certain hierarchy that they carry with them wherever they are in the diaspora. And it's all, you're always the butt end of the joke, which I found very uncomfortable when working on diaspora issues here. Um, but what was really important in bringing up those memories isn't to whitewash any of the uh, discrimination. It's to say that there is an ideal that we can work towards. And if laws protect minorities, then you can have a system where you can build towards unity. Um, and unity is too easy of a word. It's a very difficult process. It's easy to say you know, every organization I've joined is like, because we need to be united, and then it falls apart. So um, unity in that real sense of telling the truth, of facing each other's uh, um, um, injustices or the injustices that we participate in, 
it's very strong Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. And I think that could really inform that kind of work in uh, Afghanistan as well. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, hard truths that we have to speak about. But one thing with Jalalabad was that um, the laws protected Afghan Sikhs and Hindus, so that people couldn't touch their vessels because they there were purity rules uh, amongst the uh, Afghan Hindus. So one of the things that was happening, this is like 60s, 70s, my dad's memories and 50s, was that people were touching the vases and, and uh, the for to gather water and uh, they had to break it and get a new one. So there was laws that there were fines where you couldn't do that and you couldn't pull. Uh, one of the things is because of the discrimination that uh, Sikhs were facing, there was a law that, um, you would go to jail for three days if you pulled a sick a man's beard because that was what was happening. So, um, but those laws offered a, a kind of protection. Now, um, my dad was in the army. He's a respect. Um, my uncles were in the army as well. Um, so I think that there was a, a, a mistreatment, but I know he didn't, they didn't know him as a respect because he was, uh, transferred from Jalalabad, so they just assumed, you know, it was just an assumption of what, what his background was. Again, uh, probably class has a lot to do with it, although my dad struggled a lot um, because uh, my grandfather was um, was half paralyzed, so he was adopted by his uh, his uncle, and that that in itself is, you know, very different than a stepchild, I think, or an adopted child is treated very differently. So, um, but when he went to the army in Razni, um, you know, he had, um, he went through a, a very difficult time in the army and, uh, he had, uh, well, anyway, that's a very long story, but it was a very, he had a very difficult time and it had a lot to do with, um, uh, discrimination, but he did get out of it because he was able to write to the right people, um, and get, uh, involvement from, um, the authorities. So I guess, um, and my other relatives who are Uzbek were the police commissioner in, so there were um, efforts to mix through the army. That's why sending one group to another area in different ethnic groups was one way. Um, uh, the police commissioners were different ethnicities from the uh, place they were in. So again, I, I and when I hear these wonderful things and historical details that um, uh, Mr. Modessa is sharing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to your dissertation, and also, you know, it's really, it's really eye-opening because uh, that experience in Jalalabad is really isolated. But can it be used in a way that's useful? You know, that's what I would like to uh, use that memory for—not to erase, but to highlight and see: is there a way that this can happen? And the biggest heartache for me is to see Afghan Sikhs leaving. People seem to take it very casually, even in the news reports in Afghanistan, like they're going back, they're going to India or, or England. I mean, imagine leaving the broad open space of Afghanistan and being cooped up in little apartments in England. It's not going to be the same. Or in India and losing sacred land. I mean, the Sikhs have a sacred space in Sultanpur and it's one of the uh, Kadamga of Baba Nanak, so like with footsteps of Baba Nanak. So it was a place where Vaisakhi was held and it was where um, massive weddings were held and it was 
you know, people went there for blessings. It was, it's multicultural. Afghanistan has so many layers of Hindu and Sikh and Buddhist layers that it's, um, the most cruel is kind of detaching that and, and, um, and being so casual about the, the, the making of new refugees out of Afghan Sikhs and Hindus. So for me, that is a, a very, um, that, that has hurt me a lot because as a Muslim majority country, the duty is to protect minority religions. And we haven't been doing that. No, totally. I think for all of us, that's, uh, that's a shameful thing to, uh, you know, uh, experience, uh, especially those of us who, you know, are not from that community and see them leave. And, and I think the one thing that we can do is amplify their voices and also talk about these issues and not uh, just neglect it. So that's why I think, thank you for both of you today talking about those things. Um, and and uh, Dr. Said, you are actually also writing, you're a poet. Uh, how much of uh, all these things influence your writing and your work? Um, I've been writing a series of poems. Um, I do write poetry um, called The Secret Lives of Misspelled Cities. And uh, it is definitely, um, you know, they're all in English, so they're not as, as beautiful as uh, poems in Farsi or, or, uh, or Uzbeki or Pashto. But um, they are about the sort of misconceptions of cities. And um, uh, Mr. Modessa talked about how there was um, cities you can trace like uh, Turkic names in the cities. That was one of my thing. One was I wrote a lot about Jalalabad because it was so interesting to be one of the few Uzbek families for my for my dad, and then to find out all of these Turkic names, not just in Jalalabad, but also in there's an area called uh, Pishpalak. My dad was like, "That doesn't sound Pashto. What is that word?" And he had investigated, and he found that it was Bishpalak, which is five springs. And when you go there, there's five springs. So it's really, um, a lot of it was writing then, writing about, you know, my dad loved Vaisakhi, so I wrote, a lot of it is like my dad's memory and this myth of his place. I haven't visited. We left when I was, after my one-year-old birthday, and I grew up in Saudi Arabia and Brooklyn. So I don't have, and Saudi Arabia has a, a very strong uh, Tukhstani community. Um, so, and that is also um, uh, quite strong, and it's, how we came to the U.S. too. There's a Turkestan um, community here too. So um, what's interesting is uh, just tracing the names, the origin of names. So for me, when my poetry, it's origins, um, name origins, and also that discovers sort of different, uh, the, the multiple faces of Afghanistan, but uh, also the, uh, uh, the sort of feminist that's in Afghanistan in the city. Like uh, I was really fascinated by um, Oh my god, not Ms. Einark. What's the other one? Now I'm forgetting because my head is. Um, where it was once Alexander City and then it became. Oh, it was so fascinating. I wrote so many poems about that. That to take this like uh, foreign um, conqueror's city and then to name it after. I thought it was fascinating. So I get fascinated by cities and, and ruins and sort of um, inanimate things as a way to kind of talk about Afghanistan and connect. So, yeah, that's my poetry. That's that's awesome. Uh, Mr. Modassar, do you want to weigh in? If we uh, 
study the history of the region, I mean, like before all these nation states appear uh, in those lands, so the region was interconnected. And many of the empires, which was ruling from uh, all the way from uh, like Inner Asia to, to, let's say, to the China sometimes or India sometimes, where all uh, one power was ruling all the region and uh, was consist of different uh, race, ethnic groups, and uh, variety of languages. And Turkic empires were like, or proto-Turkic empires were, were, were in, the, in the region for, for a very long time. And they were uh, side by side by, uh, with the Persian empires like Akamanai or uh, Sasanid and others. So we know from that time, uh, many of the uh, Staka kind of uh, groups and others, they were, they were confederation of different race and ethnic groups and Turks were part of them. Uh, so Dr. Seed mentioned Misainak. Uh, that is an heritage of uh, Turkic Empire in Afghanistan, basically uh, part of the Kushan Empire. And later on, Yaftali's camp, and uh, we know Aykhanum was one of those uh, cities uh, left by the troops of Alexander, not Alexander himself, but later on the city was built. And uh, but when we go to the uh, to the area, we we, we, we the, all the legends that. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the stories that the people tell about that uh, area is uh, uh, that shows that the Turkic people lived in, the, in those areas from a very long time. We, we know from uh, Takar and other areas that Turkic people lived. So, so basically, uh, the, the Turkic heritage, the cultural heritage, have been in a, in a in different part of Afghanistan. Uh, but, but later on, one of one things that we Afghan state, especially uh, and later on, uh, especially about the second half of the 20th century, a start happening in Afghanistan was uh, they tried to build a unitary state with a unitary identity and then a, a unitary historical narrative. Uh, and that was something was excluding all other identities, narratives, and historical heritage. And one among all the uh, other uh, ethnocultural groups in Afghanistan, Turkic people suffered a lot as well. So lots of names, uh, whether in uh, South Afghanistan and Central Afghanistan and North Afghanistan, uh, were changed from Turkic names to whether Persian or Pashto names. And then the the state actually policy was to redefine itself within historical narratives because. I, uh, I was exam uh, exa examining some of the books, the textbooks of Afghanistan, and also to see the, uh, the official narrative of the history of the Afghan government. You can see that most of these uh, groups and those heritage, which was basically uh, from this region, for example, we know Ghaznavid, where the first empire was established inside the geography of Afghanistan. Uh, but many of things that left from Ghaznavid Empire were because they were Turks, uh, later on changed uh, as Afghan heritage. Uh, although there, there is nothing bad about that, but uh, when uh, the identity of one group is totally being neglected uh, deliberately, then that caused problems. Uh, so many names, the area names changed, uh, as well as uh, 
many of those uh, empires or kingdoms or heroes for of country people have been named as enemy of the country, invaders, and outsiders. Uh, so they've been excluded from all the uh, official narrative of the history in Afghanistan. Uh, their symbols, their, their heroes, and all of them been excluded from the, these official narratives. But this is not ex uh, exclusively for Turkic people. Others as well uh, have been uh, demonized uh, in this uh, creation of the official narrative of history in Afghanistan. And one of the rules, uh, I should mention that, that the uh, Orientalist historians of the West also played a great role in that demonizing others, because many of these uh, uh, colonial empires or colonial powers, they come from South, from India, for example, Britain. And British historians played a great role in creating all these narratives. Uh, they, they understood Afghanistan from totally uh, another perspective. So they, they saw Afghanistan from South, and they didn't know much about North Afghanistan or the culture of other ethnocultural groups uh, in Afghanistan, and also their interests and benefits uh, demanded that they should demonize those who were living in northern provinces or northern borders of the state or buffer zone that they wanted to create it called Afghanistan. Uh, so that's why uh, uh, Turkic people like Uzbeks and others in most of the English literature were named as totally lots of uh, bad names like uh, slavers or they, they, their enemy, they, they don't have civilization or culture, uh, and all those names. Uh, and even up to now, uh, basically, these Oriental historians uh, see the story from, from that perspective that the British colonial historian created. And uh, one of them is that, for example, Uzbeks came to Afghanistan uh, after 16th century, uh, which is totally lie. We know that the name of Uzbeks were given in 20th century to most of those groups today called Uzbeks. They were not called Uzbeks before. We don't come because one tribe was Uzbek, the others were. So uh, apart from that, uh, the, the cultural heritage of Turkish people in Afghanistan goes much beyond that. For example, Temurids and Herat, uh, still one of the glorious historical uh, period in the history of Afghanistan was Temurids. And Unfortunately, Timorese have been uh, demonized in the na official narrative. While we know that, uh, for example, Mazar city and the Balkh were created by uh, Timorese uh, friends or kings. Uh, and um, Alisher Nawai, one of the Uzbek poets, or let's say Uzbek, they, did, they used to do not call themselves Uzbek, a Turkic poet in Herat, uh, who was a minister, uh, he played a great role in creating that city. And Gauhar Shah, the uh, granddaughter of Amir Timur, uh, she played, a, with, with her husband, Shahrukh Mirza, played a great role in uh, creating uh, all those Ronsons, which they call it the Eastern Ronsons, in uh, Herat. Uh, and they turned Herat to a very uh, important cultural center of the East in, the, in, in, in that time. And, and, uh, and there are a few of them. And in terms of the literature, in terms of uh, architecture of Afghanistan uh, and in all those areas, and also the 
even today, if we see the fabric, the social fabric of Afghanistan, you see the clothing of Afghanistan. For example, lots of people wear chapan uh, in terms of food, the kabuli palau, like manti, and all of that. So they are all of them has got Turkey, Turkey kind of roots. So in all, almost all households in Afghanistan, you can try trace the Turkic culture in one way or another. Even the official narrative of the Afghan government uh, always denied that, that they exist. And uh, I hope they, they will be acknowledged one day. Well, it is, it is being acknowledged right now. So, <laughs> uh, and also to point out that there was uh, also some uh, disadaptation between uh, the Turkic uh, empires and the Persian empires, because uh, a lot of the Turkic, from my understanding of history, uh, a lot of Turkic empires contributed so much in to the Persian literature, Persian um, culture. Like uh, you mentioned, the Ghaznavid Empire, uh, didn't he uh, actually commission the Shahnama? So the Shahnama started to be uh, written under his rule, kind of like the beginning. Uh, and then the Mughal Empire in India, what they did was phenomenal in terms of the, the, the way that they served the Persian, Persian language. It wasn't that the Turks were these uh, strangers who came in and invaded. There was a lot of adaptation. There are a lot of coming together also. Of course. I mean, like after we, we know that after Sassanid empires and after Islam, basically, uh, although before, for Islam, also Turk, Turks and Persians, they were in, uh, always interconnected with Sogdians and others. Uh, Turks were there, and uh, even we know that when Islam came uh, in Balkh, for example, most of the fights we know from Tabari, from Ibn Yasir, and other histories that uh, Nizak Tarhan was the, uh, the, the ruler in Balkh, and he, he fought with Yazgurt and others. So we know from history that pre-Islam and after Islam, but after Islam mainly because we, we didn't have a Persian Empire, it was Turks ruling for like almost 800 years. And in these 800 years, they took the uh, what we call today Persian language, because during the Sassanid, the, the language was spoken in Iran was totally different. So this is mainly a heritage of Central Asia and North Afghanistan, the Persian language itself. But they took this language and took it to uh, different parts of the world, from India to China to, to Inner Asia, to all of that. So they were all of them Turkic empires, like you, you named Ghaznavi, that there was like 400 poets in the court of Mahmud and Masud, and the biggest literature of the Persian language, like Tariq Bayhaqi and Dafiqi and Anwari and others, they, they all served and they were they wrote their, their uh, biggest literature there. And But not just that, and other in India uh, and Iran itself during Safavids and later on, uh, all those Turkic empires, actually, they all served the Persian language and they took it to different parts of the world. And, uh, and I always joke with my friends from Iran, I say the Persian language, if we take it there, one kind of language, Persian language, and especially Persian poetry that's been written for Turkic kings, like Shahnam itself, uh, or many other poet, poet, uh, court poets that they wrote their poetry for the kings. And one is that written for the Turks, like Hafez and others, or Malana, actually, he wrote uh, for Shams, who was a Turk, a Tabrizi, and the other is by Turks, like uh, we have many Turkic poets as well who wrote in Persian. Uh, you, you name it from Nizami to Khaqani to Bidel to Amir Khosrow. 
uh, and others. So they all actually are biggest names in Persian poetry, but actually they were Turks. Uh, if we go way, way, way back in history, we also have a Buddhist uh, heritage, we have a Hindu heritage. Uh, and from what you were telling me, uh, Dr. Said, is that at the micro level, you know, at the, the city subnational level in Jalalabad, you know, the experience was a little bit different than at the national level from what uh, Mr. Mudassar uh, uh, was explaining, you know, that the, the, the state systematically tried to uh, you know, subdue other uh, ethnicities in order to create this new narrative. I think it's 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 it's, ha- it's happened in, in in many other countries, but it's important to talk about it. Um, do you do you agree with that kind of uh, analysis, Doctor Said? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I love that breakdown of what the uh, narrative, national narrative, is, um, and how we find. Um, influences from all of our different um, uh, ethnic groups uh, in the national narrative, but it's not known. Like even something like Buskashi, right, is considered the Afghan game, but it's it's actually also the national game of Kyrgyzstan because you know it comes from that um, that northern uh, culture. I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot listening to Mr. Modesto. Um I do think that when we can. If we utilize just the same way that um, divisive and um, sort of uh, uh, there's this growing, uh, again, uh, there's a way to counter that ethno-nationalism or ethnocentrism by using stories, our own stories. That's why I think oral history, bringing together stories is so important to document, to listen. And I think something that's been missing is that... Um, reconciliation time where we can listen to each other's stories. Um, that's why film is so important. Novels, stories, poetry, these things are important because you get to live in the life of someone else. Um, how do we do that uh, in Afghanistan? One of the things that came out from the discussion um, is, um, uh, you know, online was that we met all these people with different stories and we want to collect our stories. After 9-11 in New York, Columbia University launched this program to do oral history to collect stories from that time. We need that kind of community building through stories, individual stories, archiving them, collecting them, featuring them in Afghanistan as well, um, not just in the Basmer, but in Afghanistan. And I like this idea of, you know, senses, just, you know, it's hard, it's hard. There's peace building and then there's addressing uh, narrative, national narratives, and then there's small lives. Where do we fit all of it? So I don't have an answer, but it, for me, I would say sharing our stories is, is one place. One last question, uh, Mr. Mudassar, I'm going to ask this one from you, uh, is that uh, 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 so a few, over the last four years, a few uh, Uzbek leaders came in and they, they are claiming to be representing the entire Uzbek population or Turkic population of Afghanistan. And uh, every other ethnicity also, you know, every other ethnicity uh, groups who have actually taken up arms and they have been fighting, uh, they have given, uh, I would say, the entire group, whether it's Tajik or Pashtun or Azara, uh, some sort of a bad name, and and especially if they're warlords, especially if they have, they have that committed atrocities, 
how, how do you see that happen? Like, is 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 it okay for for us to see one leader of uh, Uzbek community repre- representing the entire uh, Uzbek population? Well, uh, I don't think that the Turkic communities in Afghanistan, including Uzbeks, are were one uh, united and heterogeneous uh, or homogeneous kind of uh, group. Uh, there is diversity within all groups, including within Uzbeks. And Uzbeks are very diverse in terms of uh, their culture in different parts of. They, they are divided in terms of their regions. They are divided in terms of their ideologies and beliefs. And we need, in, in 21st century, I think, uh, the era of big leaders in that sense, which is controlling all the one nation, is gone. So we need to uh, accept that. that Turkic people also like other groups, they are very diverse, and this diversity should be uh, acknowledged by in, in the uh, political era, as well as cultural and social. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, Uzbeks and Turkic people being isolated from power and excluded uh, from power for very long, and up until the leftist regime, or uh, second, second half of the uh 20th century even 1970s they were for the first time and they joined the kind of state uh as a players and in 80s that was the leftist regime which gave them some rights and that encouraged them to come and join the military and other uh, institution of the state so general dostum and later on other players like uh, general malik and others emerged from that Uh, and they brought uh, Uzbeks yes, from uh, periphery to the center. Uh, that was important. Uh, and after the collapse of the leftist regime, uh, yes, uh, during the civil war, people uh, needed a kind of uh, uh, umbrella uh, power which controlled them. And uh, yeah, General Dostum played that role. But uh, that era has already gone. So we saw that even in that time, General Dostum wasn't uh, controlling all over Uzbeks. For example, the north and north, uh, northeastern Uzbeks were very different, while northeastern Uzbeks were under the influence of the Tajik Mujahideen, like Jamiat. Uh, north part of Afghanistan were more like under the influence of the communist regime or the leftist regime. They were less uh, Uzbeks, one thing is very important that Uzbeks and Turkmens never had any predominant or very strong kind of Mujahideen party or jihadist party. They were, uh, very strangely, they were part of the communist regime and mainly supporter of the leftist regime, although were, the, the expectation was because of the, their historical uh, antagonism against Russians because they occupied their land in the other side of the Amur River. Uh, they should be against them, but no, they supported because of the main reason was their right, that they acknowledged their rights and their identity and their linguistic rights. So they supported. Uh, but but today, uh, Afghanistan society is very diverse. And I don't think that one leader can control and shouldn't be considered as uh, the leader of all the these groups. I mean, these groups, every individual, first of all, has got their own identities. They should be enjoying their individual rights. And Uzbek and Turkmen or other Turkic groups, also they should uh, enjoy their collective rights in a democratic way, rather than giving uh, some people as their owner the uh, their rights. 
at the moment, unfortunately, the Afghan government, one of the problems is that, uh, that rather than giving rights to different ethnocultural groups, the rights been given to all those chieftains, commanders, warlords, or whatever they are, uh, as the leaders in the name of the leader of these ethnic groups or the uh, owner of these ethnic groups, let's say, because they own the, all the rights and distribute the rights the way that they want. And this damage the institutionalization of democracy in Afghanistan and human rights. Uh, and we know all of these uh, big commanders, warlords, and others. Uh, the biggest, uh, the people who suffer a lot, they are the people of their own kind, from their own ethnic groups. So that's why I think that uh, it's the time that we, we should acknowledge the multicultural identity of Afghanistan as a whole, that it consists of different culture, different language, and different uh, uh, ethnicity, as well as the diversity within the groups. So there should be a justice, my idea is that within the group and among the groups. So justice within the groups uh, actually demands that there should be individual rights within the groups and also the diversity within the groups should be protected by the law. And also there should be justice among the uh, groups, different ethnocultural groups in Afghanistan. Each of them should have their own share of power, their uh, every kind of civil and social and cultural rights. So that's the way forward. And Afghanistan should be acknowledged as a, rather than a nation state, as a multi-nation state. Well, thank you so much, both Dr. Zora Saeed and Mr. Mahir Padassar for joining me today. That was the end of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a good day and have a good night wherever you are.